North Otago. It's rich in history and strong in character. And you have found the podcast that celebrates all that is good within our district. Join Gary and Damien every week as they either interview a legend or someone who is putting North Otago on the map yet again. North Otago legends, up-and-comers, and a bit of history. The name says it all. Right. Well, hello again, and welcome back to North Otago Legends and uh, Up-and-Comers and, and a bit of history. Um, so good to see you again, Damien. Yeah, Gary, it's good good to be on air again. Um, yep. You're doing okay? Oh, surviving. Yeah. yeah. Getting got, through this winter, but we won't mention COVID the weather. scare okay? Yeah, no, all good. Yeah, no, that's good. You're looking healthy. <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah. Hey, look, we've got a really interesting person to talk to today, someone who's been very involved in so many things around the community and uh, various initiatives and projects, um, someone who's who's uh, been contributing yeah. um, to a lot of journalism. Um, Did uh, you make a mistake? Because you sent the CV through. Yep. Did you compile about five CVs together of five different people, or is that one person who's done so much for our community? No, it's pretty much the latter, isn't it? Wow, yeah. that's a, yeah, it's so much. So anyway, it's with, with great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Ali Ludeman. So welcome, Ali. Good morning, and thank you for having me. I feel honoured to be among the um, wonderful people that you've had on your podcast so far. Oh, look, it's, uh, yeah, we're trying to, to find people who have, you know, done interesting things and been involved in, in important things over the years, and you certainly you meet the criteria very well. Yeah, and Ali, to be fair, your name's come up a few times, just uh, the many organisations and the involvement you have in North Otago, not just farming, but right through, and what you do for the community. So we couldn't have a podcast without you on it, so looking forward to hearing what you have to say today. So get straight into the questions. They're always the first one. Were you born in, in North Otago and were you raised here? I was in the, in the old maternity annex. I was born there. Uh, grew up in Solway Street. My father built um, the house there. when he, Mum was a tutor sister at the hospital when they married, but in those days women gave up work as soon as they married. So Dad was a carpenter at the freezing works and in his spare time he built the house that I grew up in. And uh, Edna McCulloch Kindergarten, Omaru South School, uh, Omaru Intermediate, and Waitaki Girls. Right. Oh, very, very, very good uh, calibre. I think you meet the criteria for North Otago born and raised, just from all of those, all of those names. Yeah. So, growing up in Omaru, any particular memories as a kid? Um, you know, things that you got up to, or um, just just what what happened in, in the neighbourhood. Uh, walking to school, mm-hmm. uh, it was a mile to South School, and we used to go across Omaha Park. And I always remember winters with the ice, and of course you had to jump on the puddles. Yeah, of course, which was fun. And in spring there was a, a on the reserve there was a pussy willow tree, and of course we always had to reach across and pat the pussy willow. Right. And uh, I can remember there were summers going out to Gemmells Crossing, uh, and sometimes Clifton Falls, and just you know swimming in the river and. Yeah, one of my childhood memories is just being in the water. Gamble's Crossing was amazing. There were times where you could jump off the bridge too. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I mm. never did that, but I did swing on the rope and yep. I also cut my foot on, on a piece of glass and had to get stitches. Oh, is that right? Mm. So someone had ju- thrown a bottle in below or is that? Yeah, yeah I, I was in the water and yeah. walking and ah. stood on it. Mm. Oh, well. Yeah, problem that we still have these days. There's probably bogans around back then too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, anyway, yeah. So you, um, any particular memories at, at school? Uh, any teachers that stood out for you? Oh, there was Mr Honey at South School and Mr Ballantyne, uh, Miss Carson, who for years afterwards was a stalwart of IHC, um, intermediate of Mr Williams, and I became a very good friend of his daughter. Uh, so I got to know him as a person as opposed to a teacher when I was a bit older. Yeah. At high school, Miss Gerald was the principal, and I was always a little bit frightened of Miss <laughs> Gerald, which is not a bad, you know, you need to respect your principals. Who else was there? Oh, Miss Lever, and I think she still lives in town, although she married and isn't Miss Lever anymore. And, oh. In those days, it's it's interesting, when you're a teenager, you think anybody who's a bit older is really, really old. And I remember Miss Plowman, 
And she was absolutely ancient when I was at school and she wore her academic gown and I can only remember her wearing black or navy blue. And anyway, she died a few years ago and somebody sent me the death notice and she was, I think it was 101, and I did the maths and when she was so very ancient at school, she was in her 50s. Oh, Mm. wow. (laughs) No, that's that's very young, in her 50s. Yeah, very young. Yeah. 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 so, I mean, you went on to do a lot of journalism and so forth. You know, was that interest sparked at school? I was always good at English, mm-hmm. and I can remember doing a, an essay once at school. It was uh, the art of carving, and I did it about carving the Sunday roast. And it, um, I can remember the teacher saying, well, you know, that's not what it was supposed to be about, but it's very funny and we'll put it in the school magazine. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 it's, yeah, it's quite good lateral thinking actually. But you'd probably go first to that, Damien, when you think of carving. What other type of carving is there, Gary? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, like a lot of small town girls, when I finished high school, I went down to Dunedin to university, and then I had a year at Teachers College, which taught me I wouldn't be a very good teacher. (laughs) And then I spent a year on Great Mercury or a school year on Great Mercury Island, supervising the kids the Manager's Children's Correspondence School lessons. And at the end of that year, I was uh, accepted into journalism school at Canterbury and spent the next year uh, learning to be a journalist. And at the end of that year, I applied to every paper in the country and the only one that said yes was the Omri Mail. Oh. <laughs> well, weren't we lucky? Yeah. yeah. And I was too. It was a really, really good place to start your career because a lot of friends who got jobs on bigger papers or in radio were stuck in corners sort of rewriting timetables, uh, tide tables, and I was out and about doing everything from lost pets to politics. You know, on, a, on a small paper, you do mm. absolutely anything. Yeah. And I bet the lost pets would have been more exciting than the politics, Gary. <laughs> anyway, so here's a question for you, because a lot of people, you move out of Omaru, you get a taste of the big city in that, and then having to come back to Omaru, was something you wanted to do at that stage in your life, or were you sort of, oh, do I have to go back to Omaru at this stage in my life? Like, I was a bit reluctant, yeah. and I think what, what changed it for me was there was a friend, Anne Familton, who had been overseas and come back, and she was teaching. And, you know, once you've got one friend... That's that's yes. enough, and yeah. and so yeah, uh, and also uh, Ian Elliott, who I'd flattered with at, at university, was back teaching in Omaru, and so you know a couple of friends, and you're away. Way laughing, yeah. and that's dead right. And once you get back, you realise how good it is here. I think sometimes you get away and you experience a city life, but there's nothing quite like North Otago rural life. With you know, it's it's laid back, and everyone gets on, or most people get on, and. Yeah, and once you find a few friends and find a community, it's just a great place to live. Yeah, and I also found a husband. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, yeah, yeah. quite material. Yeah. yeah, it is. Although I had a one-way ticket to the UK when I met him, and uh, I went and he followed, and when you know someone goes that far to propose, you've got to take him reasonably seriously. That sounds like a good story. Tell us more. Well, that was it. I'd actually met him. Uh, it was He was National President of Young Farmers and it was the Young Farmers National Conference in Omari that year and Rural was one of my rounds and so I was reporting on that. And I organised a photo with him as the outgoing president and Ian Moore from Waimati as the incoming one. And uh, just over a year later, I was marrying one of them and the other was our best man. Oh, right. wow. <laughs> so, you know, I don't want to just jump to an assumptions, but I, I think we're talking about Grant, aren't we? Uh, yes, we are. Yeah. I, I've had only one husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, how old were you when you, you met him? Uh, 20, was I 23, mm-hmm. I think? 23, yep. Yeah, right. Happily ever after. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, sometimes you get it, you're lucky enough to get it right the first time. Yeah. yeah. So just go back to the Omaru Mail. So when you you you, you started work there, um, it was a six day a week uh, newspaper. Um, some people won't know that <laughs> it was one uh, at one stage. But um, who who was the editor then, and you know who who were you working with? Alan Gardine was the editor, and David Bruce was the chief reporter. Right. David then went on to the ODT and was bureau chief for a long time. Mm. And they were really good um, people to work under, to learn from. They knew their community, they knew their craft, and they taught me heaps. And was that in the Coquit Street building at that stage? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Omaru Doctors now. Yeah. yeah. 
And so you married a farmer, am I correct? I, you are correct. And did you have to abide by the rule that once you got married you gave up your job or did you keep your job for a while and make it both work, you know? Well, I'd been overseas and ah, I, I so came back without a job. Yeah. And, you know, you probably know about the traditional marriage vows, but mm. they have a special meaning for those of us who take on farmers. Yeah. Because when you take on a man of the land, you don't just get the man, but the land and the lifestyle too. Yeah. And to love and to cherish applies not just to your farmer, but the farm and everything that goes with And his stock and his dogs and the... Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, to love and to cherish is, yeah. is, is, is you know, the, the land and, and the, the animals and yeah. for better and for worse is the markets and... Um, yeah. Until death do us part, you better check exactly what's meant by that. Yeah. So that was an interesting time in farming. Um, you know, when did you move on to the farm? It was uh, January 1983. Right. And a friend, Jean Little, had been working as a stringer for one of the rural giveaways, and she was about to have a second baby and said, Would I like to take over? And I did, and that led to work at Radio Waitaki as their rural reporter. And by then it was 1984, and of course that was an incredibly interesting time uh, to be a journalist um, in a rural area. And I can remember um, going out when Colin Moyle, the then Ag Minister, was visiting. Um, North Otago was in another drought, and you know, right in the depths of the Ag Sag. Um, people were getting bills when they sent their stock to the freezing works because it cost more to, to get them there and to kill them than they were worth. And things were really, really depressed. Inflation was double figures. I think it was over 20%. It was definitely late teens, if not early 20s. Uh, interest rates on our current account, we got up to 26% interest. And Colin Moyle was there speaking and he said, if interest rates aren't and inflation aren't back in single figures by this time next year, I'll resign. Uh, but I wasn't um, working uh, next year because I'd, I'd started work on Monday and realised I was pregnant on Friday. Uh-huh. Um, so, so by the time the year was up, I had a baby. Mm. No, uh, you know, I mean, that was... A lot of turmoil on farms as, um, you know, the Longy government came in and, um, you know, the SMPs disappeared and it, it, it was very hard. Those interest rates, um, yeah, a lot of people lost their farms. Yeah, um, I don't think there's any, I, I don't know any farmer now who says we're not better off because of what happened, but I think you could debate about the way it happened and, and it was really, really tough. People said, uh, you know, farmers would be walking off the, the land in their hundreds and maybe even thousands. Interestingly, most farmers were able to stay, but it was the downstream industry. I think there was something like seven or eight stock and station firms in Omaru in, in 1984 and, uh, you know, gradually one of, you know, they either amalgamated or, or dropped off and it was people like, you know, the lime spreader, and those are the people who service and supply farmers who were, were hardest hit because on the farm you just retrench. You, you stop spending and you just do what you have to do. But those people in the downstream businesses, if they're not getting the work from the farmers, they're not getting the money and they have to go out of business, which is very, very sad. Indeed. And, and the other thing, for a generation, uh, farmers' adult children didn't come back to the land and the it's only in recent years since we've had the irrigation, North Otago irrigation scheme, that we're getting those uh, that generation back, and it's it's changed things. You know, before irrigation came in, we had at, on our farm and our two immediate neighbours there were four houses. There are now sixteen, and Grant and I would be the oldest in those houses by I don't know ten or fifteen years, and you know almost everybody else is in their twenties or thirties, and they're having children, so you know that's children going to school and playing sport and involved in the community. So it's really changed mm. the community for the better. And it's not just on farm, but in farm support. Your vets and your farm advisors and your electricians and your other tradespeople. Yeah, certainly in the early 2000s, so a lot of, you know, in that area, probably the average age of farmers was into the 60s and probably mid-60s. And, um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't looking good. And then irrigation came along. Yeah, and um, that's just been made such a difference. And, yeah. you know, because it was really dry at the start of winter and normally the, um, the paper would be full of headlines about how bad it was. But 
and although you don't irrigate over winter, you know that come spring when it warms up again, you can start irrigating. And even if you don't, if, even if you're on dry land now, it, it gives you choices and and opportunities. And I can remember interviewing David Kane, who the late David Kane, who was Waitaki County, County Council Chair, and he was up at the Dasher or Mount Dasher, the Dasher, I think. And he was saying, you're obviously never going to irrigate up there in the, in the hill country. But he said, I'll be able to sell my stock to farmers who've got irrigation or they'll be able to graze it or I'll be able to buy feed for, from them. So even if you can't irrigate, you've got opportunities that you didn't used to have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, was every farm would just have to sell up all their stock and it was all hitting the market at the same time. And now, now it's not that case, so yeah. This we've um, had irrigation mentioned a few times on the podcast, and I just don't know if people probably my age or younger really appreciate the breakthrough and the ingenuity and the um, the people who just went and got that done. So, were you involved from the start, or did you champion the irrigation, or did your you know did your Ludemans have any part in irrigation um, coming through, or were you just benefited from it? Uh, no, we we were the first in our area to actually get irrigation. We we drilled for water. Grant's cousin or second cousin or something, Lyle McMillan, uh, was a driller and he was looking for work. And Grant had looked into irrigation, working with Jock Webster and others in the community. And um, he, there was knowledge with geologists that there was water underground. So Lyle said, "Look, we'll drill. If you don't get it, we'll." Know, write it off but if you do then you know you can pass so we got a water diviner who said drill here and Grant said that to Lyle and Lyle said no I'm going to drill there and Grant said why and he said because it's closer to the power lines and uh, anyway they drilled and uh, struck water and it was artesian bubbling up which was amazing and on the eve of Roger Douglas's first budget we got a loan to develop the irrigation and that nearly was the undoing of us uh, but it meant we could grow grass and I can remember um, people talking about driving past when nobody else had anything any grass, feed and yeah. we had green grass so that was the start and then Grant was on the irrigation committee with Jock and Dave Finlay and George Berry, Ken Scott and there'll be some other names that you'll be able to help me with Anyway, they were there at the start, and it took years yeah. uh, and some frustrations. Uh, you know, Meridian with the Project Ackworth kind of got in the way of that, and then there was the idea of another scheme that was going to come in, and that got in the way of it. But they persevered, and uh, was it about 2006, I think, the scheme finally got underway? You'll be about that, yeah. yeah so yeah. it took it took 20-odd years. Yeah, and, you know, and, and those some of those characters that, carried on right through and were part of all of that and you know along the way you get the Lee Hamiltons and so on who joined in as well and yeah it was um, exciting times and and absolute game changer for North Otago. Yeah uh, um, economically and socially mm. and environmentally. Uh, Grant was the one on the committee they um, had to work with the iwi and you know as, as you do and one of the agreements was that every farm would have an environmental farm plan that's independently audited every year so environmentally it, it's good too and I can remember a soil scientist coming and saying that one of the reasons in the downlands our soil is so good is it, is it blew over from the Waitaki Valley and if we don't look after it, it'll keep blowing. Oh, and I, wow. and yeah. I can remember during one of those droughts of the 80s getting dinner and watching our neighbour's paddock blow past my window. Mm -hmm. It had just been ploughed and then the Norwester struck. Yeah, yeah, and that's definitely an advantage of irrigation. It's, it helps hold the, the ground there. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, you know, you grow better grass. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you... you you had your family by that stage and so on. So do you want to talk more about family and you know, the, yeah, how that worked in with farming? The thing with, with um, farming is, is you're, you're living on your workplace. And um, Jane was actually six weeks early. Um, so my paid work finished and, and family life started or motherhood started rather abruptly. And um, that was right in the, in the middle of the egg sag. And with Jean Little and Rona McCarthy, we started um, ag um, Women in Ag and we had a field day 
the women, and I think there were a couple of hundred people um, at it. And the va- we we were got people to teach the sort of skills, you know, you know, all the jokes about fa- husbands teaching wives to drive. Well, it's like farmers teaching their wives to do anything on farms. It's not a good idea. So we had um, other people's husbands. Um, <laughs> to, um, teaching how to train a pup, how to back a tractor, uh, how to use a chainsaw, some of those jobs. And it wasn't just what you learned. And I mean, you can't learn a lot in a day, but it was just getting all those women together when times were so tough and having the social thing. So that was really good. That's fantastic. So yeah. you were a forerunner in there. That's and and allowing these ladies to use chainsaws and you know which in the past it was probably considered a taboo, was it, or just not so, not, not so, so much, much encouraged. Yeah, not so much encouraged. And I, yeah. I think, I mean, women have always had an important role on farms, yeah. and some as farmers and some in in support. And I think one of the things that Daring has done, there's a lot more women more involved as farmers yeah. than were in traditional sheep and beef farms. But these days with traditional sheep and beef farms, um, sometimes the woman is the farmer. And, and yeah. The, well, it's just an equal still. partnership. They yeah. Yeah, make all, all the decisions together and that's how mm. it is. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, back to family. Uh, when Jane was two, we had, uh, had Tom and he had a fragile start on life from the start. I had a couple of threatened miscarriages and... People would say a, a miscarriage is nature's way of saying something's wrong. And I thought, well, what does it mean when it's a miscarriage that doesn't quite happen? Anyway, short version is uh, he had a degenerative brain disorder and he only lived 20 weeks. And um, that was pretty traumatic. Mm. And um, after he died, I can remember just, I mean, you feel awful. Uh, you don't expect to bury your children. It's against the, the natural way of things. But wonderful, wonderful support from the community. Um, great extended family and friends providing meals at, at, at those crisis times. Uh, when Tom spent almost a third of his life in hospital and in response to the ag sag, we'd started supplying old ewes for the winter kill and that meant fa- uh, sharing every winter, uh, sorry, sharing every fortnight. And when I look back on that winter, I was either at home feeding sharers or getting food ready for someone else to feed. We had wonderful neighbours in Alison and Bruce Alberston and, and sometimes when I was away, uh, Alison would be looking after Jane or she was helping feed the sharers and you, you just cannot speak highly enough of people like that and the support you get. Yeah, yeah certainly when you know, times are tough, rural communities get together and support each other and it's, um, yeah, it's been an age-old thing and it's great to see that still happens um, to a reasonable extent. Oh, it definitely does. And another turning point, we had a, a Women in Ag field day and it wasn't actually about ag, it was Sister Judith Ann from Tishmakers and that was entitled uh, Beyond Aspirin for Feelings That Are a Pain in the Neck. And until then, I, I kept getting angry about things that I would normally take in my stride and what she taught me then realised that although it was nobody's fault what had happened to, to Tom, we'd had the best possible medical care from the start of my pregnancy, I was still really angry that this baby we, we loved and wanted had died and what she taught me is that you, you have to claim your feeling because it's your feeling mm. you've got to name it you know work out what it is and once you've claimed it and named it you can you can tame it and that really was a, a, a turning point and soon after that I was pregnant again and a couple of years after Tom's birth we welcomed our second son Dan and then when he was two weeks old he had a fit and I'd watched Tom have hundreds and hundreds of convulsions, so I knew what I was seeing. And the short version of that is that Dan had the same condition that had killed Tom. And so after lots of trips to hospital and, and one to Australia for an MRI scan, because in those days the only one in, in New Zealand was in a private hospital, and rather than send you to a private hospital, they sent you to Australia, the madness of, of public mm. <laughs> service. Um Anyway, um, you know, we took him home and waited for him to die, and um, he didn't. Um, when we, we got to his first birthday, it suddenly occurred to me, well, maybe he's not going to die, and that was going to be hard for us all. And for Grant, there was going to be coming to terms with the fact, I mean, he, he, he loved Jane, and he knew he could have any number of daughters who could be farmers, and any number of sons who didn't want to be, but he still wanted to do the sort of things with a son that he'd done with his own father. For Jane, there was the disadvantage of both having a sibling and being an only child and that Dan took our time and energy but was no fun to play with. Mm. Um, he didn't pass any of the developmental milestones, so 
he really couldn't do any more than a newborn. And for me, there was the knowledge that life would just get harder as he grew physically without developing intellectually. But again, we had wonderful support from our family and friends and um, people like um, Helen and Jock Webster would look after him for him, for us and, and um, Kay Schrader and uh, Pam Morrison and uh, other people. And IHC was absolutely amazing. They were really, really helpful. And uh, Betty McCabe, who's the Plunkett nurse, kept on doing her love visits, as <laughs> she called them, um, long after the official quota of visits was uh, used up just to make sure we were okay. And that sort of support just makes such a difference. Yeah. Yeah. No, you'd, be lost of, if you're, you'd be lost if you were doing it by a yourself. A lot of kindness, yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah. That's a really tough season for you. Yeah, it is. And um, Dan lived until uh, about 10 days after his fifth birthday. Yeah. And a lot of people said it was better that he died. And I know what they meant, and I say yes, it was, because his death has freed us up to do things that, that were hard to do with him, even simple things like you know walking on the beach or going to the river. Um, but it's only really because he lived that we appreciate that. Yeah. And we used to look at him and think he couldn't do anything, but he taught us so much. Yeah. Um, to lose the fear and ignorance we had about intellectual disability, to not take ability um, for, for granted because you know not everybody can do the things that able-bodied and able-minded people can do. And he taught us to appreciate our family and friends and uh, be so grateful for that community that we live in. Yeah. Just, excuse my ignorance here, but with the way you've just articulated it, I'm just so impressed with you sharing, you know, what was possibly the hardest time in your life and with your journalism skills. Have you ever written a book or anything like that, a bit just about that, um, the journey, and just to help other people or just be a blessing where other people are going through something similar? Have you done anything like that? I've written a few columns that, are, that have been published, and I have been writing a book for several decades that hasn't got finished. <laughs> well, let me, I want to encourage you. Um, yeah, just it's, it's tough to talk about things like that, and sometimes people don't, and that's okay. But um, you have an amazing gift of being able to share um, something that's been so personal, so hard. But and with your skills, um, yeah, I, let's get that book finished. Okay. Okay. We well, I make that a promise. Yes. Okay. It's, Army. Yeah. It, it's just I think it's so important just for you have keys for other people, um, and it's not just in North Otago, um, it's it's around the world. So um, yeah, it's just. It, just part of your story, and 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 it keeps the boy's story alive too by just allowing to share that out so other people can read and um, hear about what you went through. So yeah, I would love to buy you buy your book one day and read that book and just hear about how you guys um, survived a very tough season. Yeah, and when I was writing columns for the ODT, and and you know the thing about journalism, you can do it from home, and so when when the kids were little, I was doing some freelancing. And then I started weekly columns with the ODT. And as a result of that, I would get invited to speak to groups. And always somebody would come up and they had been through something similar. Yeah. Or, you know, and sometimes it was years and years before and they, they hadn't been able to talk about it. So mm. talking about it, if you're able to, is a really, really, it's, it's not just, I think it's therapeutic, but I think it's also helpful for other people. And the keys you learnt from that nun at makers just that's invaluable. Like and, and to pass them on to other people is yeah, such a good thing. Yeah, I think yeah. For for other people who have been through things and, you know, who bottle it up, I mean actually hearing someone express what they've been through, you know, it it, it makes them realise they're not alone. And that's yeah. really important. It is, and nobody goes through life untouched. I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't had some sort of challenges or sadness in their lives, and it may not be that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, if you're able to talk about it. Mm. Uh, but there is another chapter in the book too. Uh, when Jane was 32, she was diagnosed with low-grade serous ovarian cancer. It's a really, very rare form of the disease, and uh, there's no cure. And she was told her likely life expectancy was just 5 to 15 years. And um, that, in, I mean, the boys were hard, but with Jane, it, you know, it's harder still because you look at a young woman with so much um, potential. She's an, an optometrist and um, lovely husband and that the future that we all look forward to, uh, you know, 
torn away from her. But her reaction to that has been amazing. She's um, she's formed a charity, QRR Ovarian Cancer, and the aim of that is advocacy and fundraising because she doesn't want any other young woman or older woman to be sitting in a doctor's surgery and told, you know, there's no hope. So she is doing absolutely everything she can to make sure that um, that won't happen in the future. And you're a trustee on that trust? I, I was, uh, and now I've stepped down and right. she's got three more, which is probably better for the trust and, and also for our relationship because, mm. you know, I'm her mother and I won't know enough until she's much older. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you just need your mum. Exactly. You and just it, need, yeah. It's much better that I can be her mother and if she needs to talk to me and vent mm. or, you know, mm. whatever, yeah. I can do that without having any responsibility. Yeah. I mean, still supporting the trust, of course, and, and the work she does, uh, but not not a trustee. So can I ask how old, how old is she now? She's 37, 37. so she's made the five years. Yep. And, and she's doing her absolute best to um, live her best life. Yeah. And where's she based? She's based in Dunedin. Right. So... Nice and close by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her husband is our general manager, so that's right. <laughs> that's that's a bonus for us. Yeah, no, very good. Right. What so, uh, well, just you mentioned IHC before. Um, you went on at some stage. You started being the convener for IHC um, celebrity debates. So that came out of um, them helping you. Yes, yeah. um, they were so great to us and they asked if I'd go on the committee and, you know, you've when, when you know how much help you've got, you've got to give something back. So I was on the committee and I went down to Needham for a celebrity debate one night and there was Garrett Tremaine and Jim Hopkins and some others. Really, really funny and I thought this would be such a great fundraiser. So uh, we got both Jim and Garrett to, to lead the teams and a couple of MPs and a couple of other people. Uh, and the first one, the night before, we hadn't even broken even. And I thought, oh, no. But on the night, people wandered up, and J.B. Munro, who was the chief executive of IHC, was chairing it, and he'd said to me, get six buckets, three of one colour and three of the other. And at the end of the debate, he said, you know, he was going to have to judge it, but he needed some help, and he gave a bucket to each of the debaters and said sent them out among the, the crowd to, to collect donations. So we... Um, made some money and talking to Jim afterwards, he said, well, you know, the thing to do, people, pe we hadn't understood that people didn't realise it was going to be funny. They heard debate and thought mm. something yeah. serious and maybe political even, not just lots of fun, more laughs per dollar than anything else you'll do. Yeah. Uh, and Jim said, well, what you need to do is you need to do it again and get some sponsorship so that your base costs are, are covered. So we did that the next year. The Licensing Trust um, gave us some sponsorship, so it became the Bryden Hotel Celebrity Debate. And that year, tickets just sold themselves, and we carried on doing it for, I think, about 10 years. Mm. And, uh, you know, made tens of thousands of dollars for laughing. Well done. So over the years, you will have had some really interesting speakers at the celebrity debates. Is there any that particularly come to mind that has been particularly funny and, uh, you know, that you probably kept having back year after year? Uh, Garrett Tremaine was definitely one of the stars. He's very, very funny. Jim Hopkins, of course, he, he led a team at, at every debate and just so very funny. He he read what you and I know as the Omri male and he called the Omri female in a news story that you and I would read as, you know, perfectly um, ordinary and he would turn it into something hilarious. Uh, who else was there? Jackie Dean was there one year and she ended up cheering it most years. And uh, Leanne Dalziel came to a lot of them. She was very funny, often had a poem. And, oh, there was Tim Shadbolt. Mm -hmm. And before each debate, you know, I've set up who's going to be speakers quite a, months in advance. And then a few weeks in advance, I contact them again and sort out everything. And Tim, I could never get hold of him, wouldn't return phone calls. And the day before I get a phone call, g'day, it's Tim here. And he's in Auckland filming an advertisement. And I said, well, that's all right, there are aeroplanes. The conversation went on a bit and I joined the dots and I said, well, you'd like us to f fly you down. Wow. And he said, yes. And I said, right, make sure I can get hold of you and I'll arrange that. So I rang Air New Zealand and they gave us a, a reasonable fare and got back and uh, rang Tim and said, right, you're on this flight and whatever. And he said, oh, yeah, yep, that's, that's great. Now, what's the topic? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it, I mean, he's the type of guy, it doesn't matter what the topic was, he'd just get off on some rambling, you know, hilarious story and yeah, he'd, bring he'd make, it, he'd make it fit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it didn't matter. I mean, he just stood up and, and people laughed. Yeah. And, you know, laughter's great medicine. Uh, I There was one woman who was dying of terminal cancer and um, she, you know, her friends made sure she got to that last debate uh, within a very short time of her dying. And, you know, to, to have that sort of laughter and, and fun and, and making money for a good cause at the same time. Yeah. Was it ever televised or covered that way or was it just no, you had to be there? No, yeah. I think it might have been videoed a couple of times, but you, you had to be there. Yeah. yeah. That's a great bit of history. So you started that. That was your... Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it would work these days? Well, I've been thinking about that and thinking, well, um, I know IHC would like me to do it again for them, but I also thought, well, for Cure Our Ovarian Cancer, mm. yeah. the Ovarian Cancer Charity. Yeah. I, th- I think it would if, if you got the right people. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, there were some who weren't funny. Uh, there was an MP whose actually name I've forgotten, and, and he, <laughs> <laughs> which is possibly a good thing. He, he just wasn't funny. Uh, but, you know, mm. we had those other gems who were very, very funny that made up for it. Yeah, no, I think I think it would be great to see a comeback from that and I, um, be for, great. for that the ovarian cancer But you'd cause. have to be careful because things are so PC nowadays. I can imagine between Jim Hopkins and, and Mia Shabolt, some of the things they said you probably couldn't say nowadays, so you'd have to be careful in what you said and how you said it. Would that be fair? Uh, things have changed a bit, yeah. yes. Yeah. Not necessarily for the better. Maybe you just sign a disclosure that if you're at the debate and whatever you hear, you can't, you know, it's like a comedian. Just have a yeah, a, a beep over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. going the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. I'd certainly be happy to support you if you were thinking about doing something like that again. So anyway, all the best for that. So um, yeah, coming back to to family um, and on the farm and so forth. I mean, over the years, you you also um, well, you you expanded the farming empire. Uh, you and Ludi. Got, got one or two more farms. Yes. Um, well, we once we got irrigation, uh, we thought about dairying and granted sort of thought about it and said no and then thought about it again and said no and then he thought about it again and said yes. So we started with uh, one one farm and then as we got more irrigation, we, we could put on another shed and we had uh, two sheds with one manager overseeing and things just never went as well as they ought to, and we um, got some advice from Rogan Borry, who's a very forward-thinking and, and able dairy farmer, and he said, well, you know, maybe it's better to get to be smaller rather than bigger, and why don't you put on another shed and divide the herd up so you've got three smaller ones, and that's what we did, and then when we got more irrigation, we put on a fourth, so we now have four herds of 500-ish cows, uh, all with shear milkers, and shear milking's great because the the better the shear milkers do, the more they make. So they've got skin in the game. Yep. Whereabouts are the farms? They're all at home at Windsor. Are they all at Windsor? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, Grant in particular carried on doing sheep as well though, hasn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. sheep and beef. So we own Glencoe Run uh, behind the mill house at Wainakarua, up above the forestry. Uh, good hunting, Damien. Well, you <laughs> just sparked my interest. And, uh, yeah, I, I may know the property you're talking about, but we'll talk about this more off air and we'll go from there. Yeah. Gary needs to get his first deer, so I'm just going to drop it in there and I'd happily, you know, if it could be a ranger, I could take him out there. Well, I don't know if to I get trust his you to first take me animal. out shooting. It'll be an amazing a moment, but anyway. Yeah. Well, it's up to the farm manager, <laughs> but I, I can introduce you to him, Dan Burke, who, who's a great young man. Uh, and, yeah, we've got a, um, a small sheep farm at Enfield and a runoff block at Windsor and uh, one in Southland, uh, Onslow View at Miller's Flat and a finishing one uh, in mid-Canterbury. Mm. That would explain why it gets around the countryside a bit. Yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah. But between the two of you, obviously very good business people and obviously we have to, you know, maintain that. Gary called it the empire, but um, is that what you said? But, um, yeah, well, yeah. And, and then she went on to describe an empire pretty yeah, much, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, that, that, 
that must keep you very busy. How do you get time for everything else that you do, as well as maintaining all the farms and, and employment and all of that, all those things? We have wonderful people working for us. Is that and the key? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a great team from Trish Oaks in the office, uh, Trish and Elisa in the office, and uh, Trish's husband, Malk, joined us. He was a farrier, and, and now he does fencing and other work for us, and uh, Duncan Kingan, who people might know from rugby. Um, he's an important part of the team, and Sharon Farmer, and I'm going to sort of have to, you know, now that I've started naming, I'm going to miss people <laughs> out. But one of our staff, um, who no longer is, was Don Fraser, and he came to do three days tractor work for us in 1989 and he retired 30 years later and he was 59 mm. when he came to do work for us. So if you do the maths, mm. he was almost 80 when he retired. Wow. Yeah. And he, 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 he was a bit legendary. Was yeah. It? Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's those, we could not do it without good people. Yeah. And so what else in the community are you involved in or have you been involved in over the years? I know you've, you've sat on trusts and, and boards and things like that. Been on Rotary. Rotary. Yeah. What else well, is? Still in Rotary and, yeah. and Bookarama, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. And this year we made a record, or we took a record, $56,000. Fantastic. Which, and it's such an amazing community uh, uh, event because people give us the books Yep. And we have not just Rotarians, but uh, um, other people who love books who come and help us sorting and selling. And then people come in and buy them. And some of the people who buy them are the people who give us books. Yeah. And they buy this year and give them give them back next, next year. year. <laughs> so it's it's a very green thing. Yeah. <laughs> Reusing. Yeah. No. I just need to read more of mine, and then I'll get them back again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It's it's great, and you know, just so popular, and it, yeah. and. It, it's a lot of work for you guys, and you, you get some help, I know. But um, yeah, it's it, it then all goes off to good causes, and that's that's a really great thing. Yeah, it is, and some of um, last year and this year is, is supporting the event centre, which will be an absolutely wonderful mm. asset to the community. And you know, in the past, we helped the Kindy Association buy a bus. Uh, I think this year's helping um, the library get a three D printer. So yeah, there's. Projects big and small that because of the community generosity and support we're able to help. And Rotary is just such a great organisation. You have the camaraderie, you know, lovely people. And actually, Bukarama helped us recruit some more, which has been wonderful. Well, this was how do people join? If someone's listening today and they want to get involved and help out in the community, they get hold of you or how do they? Um, get hold of any Rotarian or if, yeah. you, if you go out, there's an Omaru Rotary Facebook page. If you go oh. on Facebook, you'll find out. But contact any Rotarian and we'll welcome you. And you got recognised for your work as a Rotarian by the organisation last year, was it? Uh, Paul Harris Fellow, which is not just for what you do in Rotary, but Mm. what you do in the community, which is a great honour. There's some absolutely amazing people who've been awarded them, so I felt very humbled and honoured to be included. Oh, congratulations and and well-deserved. Thank you. Good, Good job. Yeah. What else? Keep telling. I know there's a lot more there, and we, <coughs> excuse me, we get onto a good story. So, what else are you doing in the community, and what else do you get involved in? That's about all I'm doing now. Uh, but one thing I was involved with um, the year after Dan died, we were approached to host an AFS student, and uh, we thought, oh well, that'll be good. You know, Jane hasn't had a brother. Um, so Bruno Rossi from Argentina came to live with us for a year and when he arrived he could say please, thank you, rugby or black <laughs> that was about the, the limit of his English but he was good at sport he was the best basketball player in the school and he was good enough for the second 15 and you know, with total immersion he, he learned to speak English and th- there's a huge element of luck in these relationships and we got the jackpot Bruno's a lovely young man, his family's now our family um, his brother Raul's a vet and vets in Argentina do a lot of farm advice so he came and lived with us for six months to learn about farming in New Zealand Um, his sister and and her husband have been to see us his parents have been to see us um, and we've been to Argentina 11 times Wow! so it's the door that shut when Dan died opened so many other doors Mm. that would have been tough taking someone on a year later but you felt that um, for your daughter that was a really positive thing to do and 
and it, and it obviously had that desired effect. You were, yeah, yeah, although at the start, um, Jane wasn't, I mean, she she was part of the conversation about having him and thought it was a good idea, but once he arrived, um, you got that sort of sibling thing that ah. she wasn't used to. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, she had to share. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by the end of the year, she was as fond of him as yeah. we are and, and they're still in regular contact and... Um, very supportive of of us and, and of, of of each other. And um, when Jane was diagnosed, we she found that the world expert on low grade serous ovarian cancer is in Houston, and so we went there to consult him. And Bruno's sister Anna is a, a doctor in the United States now, and so she came down there to be with us and ask That's the sort cool. of wow. medical questions that we wouldn't be able to. So you know, mm. it's just been an amazing relationship. Yeah, yeah. very special. Mm. And hablo español? Uh, sí, pero mi español está muy oxidado. Mm. Un poquito. <laughs> my, Span- my Spanish is very rusty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually went, I, I was, when Jane left home, I did too, went down to Needham to do a writing course to finish that book that we were talking about. Yeah. And uh, I, the writing was only in the morning and I was living there Monday to Friday and I picked up Spanish at university in the afternoon because of our yeah. Argentinian connections. And writing finished in July, but I didn't know enough Spanish, so I negotiated some extra leave and dis- discovered if I did another couple of years, I could get a diploma for graduates. And I'd just started my third year when Grant rolled a tractor and just about killed himself. So I had to pull out to look after him. And when he was getting better, he said, you know, since you can't learn it, why don't we go and live it? So we went to Spain for three and a half months. I think we went to Spain and lived in Spain. That's a, That's a good way. alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, winter in Dunedin versus summer in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that hard. And so I went to language school and he got better. Wow. Yeah. Right. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about Jane's journey and so on. Um, you know, is there anything that you'd like to finish up on that um, comes back to that story? Uh, it's a plea for every woman and anyone who loves a woman to know the symptoms for ovarian cancer. Um, they're quite vague. Um, they include changes in, in bowel habits, needing to pee more often, pain and in intercourse, um, bloating, eating a little bit and feeling full quickly. And there are some others that have escaped me. Uh, but if you go to the website, cureourovariancancer.org, they're listed there. Or if you just Google ovarian cancer symptoms, you'll find them. And it's really, really important to know them. And if they continue for a couple of weeks, then you should go to your GP. And if, if they keep continuing, keep going until you get a diagnosis. It could be something very innocuous. Um, it, you know, for most people, thankfully, it won't be ovarian cancer. But one in 70 women get it, so it could be. And if you know the, the symptoms and keep going to your GP, uh, you need to get a CA125 blood test and an ultrasound to confirm the diagnosis and really, really press for that if those symptoms are continuing because Jane had been to her GP for a couple of years before she was diagnosed and had she been diagnosed earlier, it would have been caught earlier. If you catch it at, at the first stage, then um, that's pretty much it. You, you, you get it, you have surgery and, and you're fine. Yeah, that's good information for for everyone out there, something to take note. And, you know, who knows, we might end up with a celebrity debate which helps raise some funds for that great cause. So we'll we'll see how we go. There's another challenge for me. Yeah. (laughs) I I would get in behind it too, yeah. I would, yeah. No, I just think that's a great idea. And, um, yeah, laughter is a great medicine. And I just think this season that we've gone through, um, the whole world, but, you know, just north of Targo, there is a lot of uncertainty and there is a lot of fear out there and, and not knowing what's around the corner. So something as simple as a celebrity debate um, could be just the thing, just to bring some joy and some laughter back to the community. And I'm sure, yeah, um, many people would get behind it. So, yeah, let's do it. Okay, the, yeah. the, there's a quote, um, Robert Fulgham, who wrote All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Yeah. It's the st- Storyteller's Creed, and the last two lines are, I believe that laughter is the only cure for, for grief, and I believe that love is stronger than death. Wow. So mm. there's a lot to be said for both laughter and love. That's very well Great said. Great quote. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Ali. It's very, been very much appreciated, and you know, you've been involved in so many things, and I think you know, we've, we've covered a, a good number of them, but... 
there's probably more. Um, and we just really appreciate all that you've done, um, you know, within the community, all the things you are still doing. Uh, it's really appreciated. So thank you for, for coming and sharing your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I just want to thank you for your strength, um, this, just being able to share your testimony. Um, and, yeah, just how that helps other people. And if nothing else today, that for me is probably the highlight that you're able to articulate um, probably the toughest season in your life but actually give hope to other people or you can turn it around to use your testimony just to let other people know they're not alone or they there's someone there they can talk to or um, even those keys from that, that nun, just how to walk through something like that. So um, for me, that's this has been the highlight, just hearing you share um, just just being honest, I guess, but how you've got through and just the strength, your strength, Ali. So thank you for that. You're you're a very strong woman. North Otago is blessed to have you and um, you do great things for our community. So thank you very much. Thank you. And perhaps it's important to say that, you know, I'm not always strong. Uh, there's been a lot of tears. There's yeah. been a lot of prayers and there's been, don't tell my mother, there's been a lot of swears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, nobody's strong all the time. No. And, yeah, I get that. But, um yeah, yeah, I do get that. But, yeah, the fact that you're standing now and you can share your testimony, I think that, that says a lot about who you are and, and how far you've come. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. And and the people who've helped me get here. Yeah. Well, Damien? Well, that's interesting, Gary. It's very just, interesting. So often we get onto a story and we'll go one way and, and it will just end somewhere else. But it, it's, it's just it's good information. It's good stuff that... Um, yeah, this podcast actually we've we can learn a lot, and not just about history. We can learn about um, people walking through times, hard times, and how they've come through, and and that's good as well, Gary, isn't it? Yeah, oh no, absolutely. And, and I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to us to speak with Ellie and hear her stories was she's probably one of the most gracious people I know, and you know, having been through everything that she's been through, yeah. has come out, you know, and and was just a, a lovely person, and you know, has been. So giving. Yeah, well said. And on that note, we'll finish it there. And I'm looking forward to some more gems coming up in our later podcast. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much.